It seemed like a good song to begin with on 9-11. We need to be reminded sometimes that we're more than conquerors through Christ. That it's not about nations. It's not about the dark forces in the world. It's really about the hope that we have in Christ that delivers through everything that makes us overcomers. We were talking about just a few minutes ago. It's kind of remarkable to realize how many young adults among us either weren't born or too young to remember the events of that day. But if you're not too young, then you probably remember exactly where you were when you heard the news. It was a dark day. And it seems sort of fitting that we would be at the point that we are in our study of of Revelation because uh, Revelation is sharing with us some images of very dark days, and we need to be reminded in all things that we are overcomers through Christ. I want to welcome you here this morning, the St. James Christian Church. We're glad that you're here. If you're visiting, please fill out a Connect card. If you're watching online, uh, you can fill out a Connect card on the website. Just let us know that you were with us today. We, uh, we have a fellowship dinner coming up next week. We want to remind you about that. There's a lot of other announcements in your bulletin. I encourage you, if you didn't get one already, to pick one of those up because uh, I'm not going to review everything that's in there. But uh, we do have a fellowship dinner next week. It's a uh, hot dish and ice cream, so bring your favorite casserole and uh, homemade ice cream. I broke out the homemade ice cream maker last night. It's been a long time, so I thought I'd better do a trial run, and uh, mixed up a batch, and I got to tell you, tasted like my childhood. It was that good. Uh, So looking forward to that, looking forward to sharing that time with you. I think it'll be a good time of fellowship, and we also want to honor our newest members at that that luncheon. So please come and and be with us. Here at St. James Christian Church, one of our core values is walk in the Spirit, and this is one of those things that, you know, some of, some of our other core values are sort of self-explanatory. When we talk about walking in the Spirit, it's, it's a concept that is a little more difficult to grasp, and we sort of wonder, what, what does that mean? Paul tells us if we walk in the Spirit that we won't gratify the desires of the flesh, which means walking in the Spirit is sort of the antidote to the selfishness of my human nature. Walking in the Spirit basically means choosing our source. Rather than relying on myself or relying on things in this world as a source, I am relying on the Spirit of God for guidance, for direction, for input into my life. Relying on that as a source. So to walk in the Spirit is to be trusting God as my source. And trusting God, let's all be honest, is a little bit easier said than it is done. Let's turn your attention to the screen. Jesus, I just don't trust you. You don't trust me? No, I mean, I want to trust you. I just don't. (laughs) I have an exercise that I think will really help. Oh, okay. Stand here and face this direction. Mm -hmm. Now, do you trust me? Uh, No, I just said I don't trust you. This is all part of the exercise. All right. Whenever I ask you if you trust me, you say, yes, Jesus, I trust you. Even though I don't. It's practice. Okay. So, do you trust me? Uh, Yes, Jesus. 
I trust you. Now, fall back. Are you going to catch me? Don't worry about that part. Okay, that's the part I'm worried about. <laughs> you can do this, okay? Just trust me. Trust you. Fall back. Okay, well, Jesus, I trust Good. you. <laughs> yeah, that's the strongest Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, let's try this again. Just face this direction and keep your feet planted. All right. Do you trust me? Yes, Jesus, I trust you. Now, fall back. Okay. I'm gonna do it. All right. I'm really gonna do it. <laughs> Good. Ah! Oh, Jesus, you really got me! Yeah. I didn't think you were gonna catch me, but you did! Oh, that was great! <laughs> You're ready for level two. Level two, here yes. I come, baby. Woo! Oh. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, hold it. <laughs> oh, you know what? You're too close. You need to move back. <laughs> ah, right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this one's a little bit different. Now. Oh, okay. Uh, stand here. Uh huh. But face me. Oh, forward fall. Okay. I can do that. Wait. Whoa. Okay. Um, wait for my signal. Oh, right. The Jesus signal. <laughs> yes, the okay. Jesus signal. Do you trust me? Yes, Jesus. I trust you so much. Good. Fall back. <laughs> That's awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> Especially when you do it. <laughs> Seriously? Of course. Okay, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed this, but there is nobody over there. I know it looks that way to you. It looks that way. It is that way. You can do this, Laura. Just trust me and fall back. <laughs> Jesus, I can't do that. We can do it together. I can't. You can. I won't. If you were with us last week in our study of Revelation, you might have noticed, you might have noticed that uh, John's vision reaches the end of the story in the middle of the book, reaches the coming of Jesus in chapter 11. Where do we go from there? Well, the truth is we back up. We back up and uh, we know that we're backing up because in the next uh, visions that John is going to share with us, there are these repeated references to, to the 42 months, the 1260 days, the three and a half years, the time, times, and half a time. And so all of this is kind of a reference to that same uh, period of time before the coming of Jesus that is going to be cut short. It's the time that will be cut short. And John is going to take us back to that time, and he's going to give us a different perspective of what's taking place in that time. And where we have been focused on what is happening to the people of earth and what they're experiencing and the wars and all the desolation that goes with that and pestilence and different problems that they're, that they're having, John now wants us to see what is happening in terms of spiritual warfare. What is going on behind the scenes? What is it that is being accomplished in the heavens, as it were? And the so the purpose of this, these next visions is really to give us insight into that spiritual battle. So we read in Revelation 12, the first four verses, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out as in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. 
its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. So basically we're presented with uh, a woman in labor and a dragon. The woman in labor is often equated with, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, but really the vision is much more expansive than that. This is a reference to Israel or a reference to the faithful. And dragon, of course, is something altogether more sinister, something evil, a presence that we have been aware of since the beginning of time. Basically, these represent the people of God and the enemy of God. The people from whom the Messiah, the Deliverer, the story's hero, are going to be, is going to be born. And the enemy, the dragon, the serpent, the Satan, the accuser, the one who disrupts the story at every opportunity. In verse 5 it says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. There it is. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. Now what's interesting about this is that uh, so many of these visions have borrowed from Old Testament symbols. For this vision, John borrows rather heavily from Greco-Roman mythology. So the Romans had Apollo, the god Apollo whose mother, uh, Leto, was chased and harassed by the great serpent, Python. And uh, so Apollo, after his birth and recognizing the, all the trouble that this python caused for his mom, decides he's going to defeat this beast. Some scholars regard this as kind of a universal mythology. In other words, these, this story seems to exist in almost every culture. There is a dragon or a serpent who's the harasser and the hero of the story who ends up being the hero of whatever nation we're talking about defeats this dragon or this serpent. And it just shows up in a lot of different cultures. The, uh, the significance of the Apollo myth is that Apollo is a Greek among Greeks. He is the ultimate in Greek gods. As a matter of fact, uh, he doesn't get a new name for the most part. There is no Roman counterpart to Apollo. He's simply Apollo. And the reason for that is Apollo is familiar to both Greek and Roman culture. And Apollo is seen as really the source of Greek culture. It all sort of supposedly flows from, from him. And so the, 
the culture is deeply rooted in this idea of the god Apollo. And so the fact that he is this victor over this dark menace is really important in Rome. And you expand that and think about all the cultures that have had some sort of menacing serpent where the hero has defeated him. And it's as if John is using this vision to say, you've heard the mythology. Let me tell you the real story. Let me tell you what's really happening behind the scenes. This, this is the truth of what is happening among God and his enemies. Now, the myth of Apollo, ultimate, in, in that myth, Apollo ultimately slays Python by shooting him repeatedly. He has to shoot over a hundred arrows because most of the arrows bounce off of his scales and eventually he starts finding weak points in the scales and, and manages to to kill Python, with, but, it, but it, takes a, it takes an enormous amount of effort and artillery. Interesting thing about what John proposes in this vision is that Jesus, who is the hero of the story, doesn't seem to be directly involved in the battle with the dragon at all. Matter of fact, it's the archangel Michael who leads up the forces of heaven and fights against this dragon. But Jesus somehow is still the hero of the story, and it's sort of a counter-narrative, saying this is, this is how you always heard it went down, but how it really went down is something completely different. And what the passage makes clear is that those who triumph over this dragon do so by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, the dragon's defeat is accomplished not by Jesus' military prowess. The dragon's defeat is accomplished by the sacrifice of the Son. This is one of the great paradoxes of Scripture. This idea that by losing the immediate battle, Jesus is victorious over all the battles. It is, it, it, is, it is the great paradox of Scripture. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the deep magic. While seeming to lose, Jesus' sacrifice actually overcomes the debt of sin, and Jesus' resurrection overcomes the problem of death. And so there is this ultimate victory. Well, you take away sin and death, from Satan's arsenal, and he really doesn't have that much leverage left. He doesn't have that much to work with, and it says he's, he is thrown down at this point, which sort of implies that, that Satan occupies a space in heaven alongside God up until the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. I don't think that's really what's intended here. It's more a uh, symbol of his defeat in other words, heaven is the place of divine things. It's at this point that he no longer has that sort of title. It's at this point that he is put down. And his defeat makes everything else that he does from this point forward kind of pointless. See, it's, it's Satan's intent 
to prop himself up in the place of God. Well, guess what? That battle is already lost. There's no hope of that. So he is cast down to earth, hurled to the earth, and he pursues the woman, and and then when he can't reach the woman because God um, provides protection for her, which interestingly appears in the in the myth of Apollo as well, in the myth of Apollo, Poseidon uh, provides protection for Leto on an island in the middle of the sea, a floating island in the middle of the sea. God provides protection for the woman in the wilderness, which of course invokes a lot because the Israel spent a lot of time in the wilderness with God's protection. Revelation 17 says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. That that would be us. So unable to defeat God, unable to defeat his chosen, the dragon lusts for revenge. And this is a daunting prospect. This is, not, this is not something we enjoy thinking about. That Satan is wandering the earth seeking to create deception, seeking to create destruction. Peter says he wanders about like a, like a roaring, growling lion, prowling, seeking whom he can devour. Satan is described in this vision essentially like a wounded, cornered animal. And in that sense, he's extremely dangerous. Approach with caution. He's dangerous because he's already lost. All of this vile anger, all of this malicious deceit coming from Satan is happening, at least in part, Because he's already lost the battle. He's furious because he's defeated. There is an answer to sin and death. We we come here this morning to celebrate that there is an answer to sin and death. Satan's only hope is to distract the world from the fact that there is an answer to sin and death. And so the dragon conjures two beasts in order to inflict damage on the world. The first beast comes from the sea. The sea, remember, is a a symbol of chaos and worldliness. The second beast will come out of the earth. And of course, this sort of recalls Uh, the earlier vision in which the messenger of God stands on the earth and the sea at the same time, demonstrating that God has authority over these things. So even as these beasts rise up from the sea and the earth, there's this sense that God is still in control, that their efforts, as dark and disastrous as they are, are limited by the sovereignty of God. It says in chapter 13, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and in each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet 
like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So basically, this sort of combines and reinterprets visions that we saw back in Daniel of beasts as symbolic of empires. It continues in verse 5, it says, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. There it is again. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life and the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. What we have here is the first beast is essentially the culmination of worldly empires. All of Daniel's four beasts representing this succession of empires that would come are sort of combined into one. He has elements of all of those beasts that, that Daniel talks about. He's got all of their horns, uh, and, and it's just, just this one character setting itself up against God and his people. Everyone except for these whose names are written in the book of life. So the whole world, except for the followers of Christ, worship this great empire, even though it is empowered and coming directly from Satan. In verse 11, it says, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. This is the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. It has an appearance something like a lamb. That is intentional, because we've already introduced in Revelation the idea that it is a slain lamb who is the savior of the world, the one who is worthy. So this false beast has the appearance of a lamb, but it speaks with the voice of a dragon, which you can only imagine what that must sound like. Speaks with the voice of the dragon, indicating that even though it might look like a lamb, it is really speaking for the dark one, for the evil one. And verse uh, 16 says, Also force the people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, the second beast is a powerful false prophet. The purpose of this prophet and his prophecy is to deify the empire, to treat the empire as if it is God, to create the religion, the cult of empire. This was a concept that the Christians of Asia Minor were already quite familiar with, the cult of Caesar, and, and, and they, they were um, impressed upon to worship the pagan gods of Rome, and quite often, if they didn't, 
they were denied access to the markets, denied access to economic participation in the culture. These beasts together, they compel the whole world to blasphemy and idolatry. Now, embedded in all of this is a concept you've probably heard of, the idea of the Antichrist. The Antichrist becomes uh, a fascinating study when, whenever we're looking at Revelation, even though Revelation doesn't ever call him by that name. The Antichrist is a, is a concept that we're sort of introduced to in Daniel. It's mentioned a couple of times fleetingly in the New Testament. Uh, and yet, sometimes we have a very extremely developed idea uh, about the Antichrist that maybe uh, doesn't have as much merit as we, as we imagine. But this idea of the Antichrist is embedded in this vision of the two beasts because the Antichrist is the one that not only opposes God, but sets itself up as the replacement for God. It attempts to identify itself as a messianic figure. Now, what's a little alarming to me is that we increasingly speak of our political figures in messianic terms. They're going to save us, going to deliver us. Now, whether such a figure comes to be universally worshipped, the spirit of the Antichrist is an ever-present reality. And the vision of the two beasts tells us that that spirit of the Antichrist that the New Testament talks about in a couple of different places is going to play a very important role in the last days. You see, there are always empires. Always empires of men. And they almost always, at some point, set themselves up against God, assume his sovereignty. And there are always false religions, those who draw our hearts and our minds and our eyes away from the true God onto something broken and idolatrous. What the Antichrist really is, is the convergence of these two things. The coming together of worldly empires that set themselves up against God with worldly false religions that reinforce the empire. It's a sick symbiosis. The empire endorses the false religion and the false religion endorses the empire. And it says here in the passage that the worshipers of this empire are marked this is not necessarily a literal mark. Maybe, maybe it will be one day. But just as we bear the mark, the seal of the Holy Spirit on our lives, it's not a literal seal of clay or, or wax, but it's the Holy Spirit. Somehow, somehow the worshipers of this beast will be marked by that worship. And in verse 18, it says, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. 
oh, this inspires endless analysis. There is so much stuff about this number, and it is a fascinating number. It's a fascinating number theologically. It's a fascinating number uh, mathematically. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting study, and we could probably spend the next month just trying to unpack all of that, and I'm not going to do that. If you want to have a conversation with me about the number 666, great, but we're not going to spend much time on it here this morning. I'm gonna, we're going to stick with the simplest of understandings about this, okay? Uh, I want to I recall a revelation principle that I've already given you, that the most dangerous evil is almost, Okay? Remember that the number seven that we've encountered multiple times in Revelation is a perfect number. It's a number that we associate with the Lord because it means fulfillment, it means shalom, it means peace. It is perfect. Six is not quite seven. It falls short of that. Six also happens to be the day of creation in which man is created. And man is created in the image of God, but the first, the original sin, and the sin that continues to plague us on into today is the sin of thinking that we could be like God. That we could take his place. And so the significance of this number, this series of sixes, is that it is not quite the Messiah that we're looking for. It is not quite God. But it pretends to be. It assumes to be. It places itself in that position. And so the number of the beast makes clear that it is the evil of almost. It is this almost Christ, this almost Messiah that puts itself in his place and therefore the anti-Christ. The evil of men who bear the image of God and forsake that image in an attempt to become gods themselves and play at the business of the sovereignty of God. That is the spirit of the antichrist. That is actually much more alarming to me than the idea of a single person who engages the role of the Antichrist. These are very daunting visions, but what does it all mean? Well, for the churches in Asia Minor, this was a severe warning against the cult of Rome. Because this spirit is very much existent in the Roman Empire. The deification of the emperor, the imperial enforcement of pagan religions for Christians to defy this required a great deal of personal and professional sacrifice. They were shut out. And what, what the vision reveals is that not only is this your immediate battle, not only are you facing these trials, but this is a grand spiritual battle. Because 
there is our eternal kingdom, and then there is the effort of the empires of men to replace that kingdom with something less, something broken, something that actually rejects the sovereignty of God. And we have this whole, this whole battle, this whole struggle between the kingdom of God and the empires of the world. It is really one of the overarching themes of the whole letter of Revelation. And we need to understand that the empire is the convergence of tyranny and idolatry. It's where the tyranny of man comes together with the idolatry of false religion. And those are the two beasts that we have. The empires of men and the false prophet. You see, it is the nature of the powerful to desire tyranny. I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb to say that the vast majority of our politicians in our great republic do not care about democracy until they're losing. As long as they have power, they're happy to wield it. As a matter of fact, the existence of our Constitution, the existence of all of the rules that keep them from wielding that power without restraint are a bit of a hassle. And so, what do we have? We have the implementation of a lot of policy that you and I never voted on. How does that happen in our great republic? It happens because people who espouse the virtue of democracy during the election cycle are not particularly concerned about it if they can exercise power without it. This is not just a commentary on American government. This is a commentary on humanity. Human beings desire tyranny. We give them a little bit of power, a little bit of authority. They're not satisfied. They want more. Ultimately, they want it all. And they tell themselves, it's okay when I have the power I'll use it to do good. When I'm in control, I'll use it for virtuous things. And of course, that doesn't seem to be the way that it works out very often. And it's part of why when we do have the rare political leader who does not become obsessed with power and tyranny, they become our heroes. They become heroes for us. Because they have the virtue to step away. Nature of the powerful is to desire that tyranny, but even that tyranny is not enough. I don't want to just control you. I want you to worship me for controlling you. This is the nature of the Antichrist. I want to have a control by which I can defy even the ordinance of God, and I want you to worship me for my effort. The empire and the spirit of the Antichrist, they're always at work. And if you consider 
Consider our present world. We have instituted a secular religion that rejects the morality of God, that first normalizes sin, then celebrates sin, and then demands that we all celebrate sin. And if you speak back against the absurdity of this condition, you will be shut down, you will be labeled, you will be cast out because there is no room for dissent. These are the ultimate truths of the empire and they will not be countered. We have redefined truth to suit our own purposes and demanded that academia and science and the media echo our new truth. These institutions that are supposed to be independent and objective and be seekers of truth actually become the regurgitators of the empire's propaganda. The empire constantly purports to be saving us from some impending disaster of its own making. And surprise, surprise, every solution proposed requires our increasing loyalty, obedience, and dependence on the empire. Until the worship of self to which our nation has become increasingly devoted converges with the worship of the empire, the great false messiah of the world. Now all of this creeps up on us. It's easy to dismiss the preacher when he says these things on Sunday morning as just religious propaganda. These things creep up on us. We get used to them. We grow accustomed. Think, it's really not that bad. Can I just tell you that the things that we read about in Revelation, that we fear so much, we think, what, how terrible it's going to be to live in the world at that time. We're already there. We're already living in that world. We've just grown numb to its effects. These things are all taking place. The enemy of God is actively at work in the hearts of men, in the nations, in the governments of men, in the empires, trying to do his will, which is to undermine God's will, to direct our attention to all the wrong things, to all the broken pieces. But the kingdom is the reign of our perfect and sovereign Lord. If the empire desires tyranny and the empire desires idolatry, the kingdom calls us to have no king but Jesus and to worship no one except the one who is actually worthy of our worship. Kingdom tells us that by denying ourselves and becoming subject to Christ, we will be made free. We will be made free in truth and in value and in love. Where the empire and the false religion of the empire promotes self-worship 
with the ultimate objective of making us prisoners of the empire. Our call as believers is to kingdom and priesthood. Everybody's always trying to identify the Antichrist. Every generation points to leaders in its time, says that, that's the one. Whoever I don't like, right? So for some people, Biden is the Antichrist. I, I don't think he's liked well enough to be the Antichrist, but there, there's that. For some people, Trump is the Antichrist. What's the point of this message? Is which, which one is the Antichrist? The point is, it, it, it doesn't matter. If the people of the world serve empire and false gods, we have already entered into the spirit of the Antichrist, whether or not any particular character shows up to fulfill the role. Our call is to kingdom and priesthood. And it is a call that is exclusive. It, it is a call that doesn't really leave us any room for other options. In other words, if we are not pursuing the kingdom of Christ, we are at the very least facilitating the empire of the world. When we haven't time for the kingdom things to which Christ is actively calling us, more often than not, it's because we're too busy trying to secure our place in the empire. This is a flirtation with disaster because the empire, as much as we want to be involved, as much as we're attracted to elements of it, much as we want to be accepted and loved by it, the empire has at its core, at its heart, an appetite for our destruction. That's why it's there. Make no mistake. The best nations of this world pale in comparison to the sovereignty of God. We overcome through Christ. There is no other pathway. There is no other salvation. There is no other Messiah. We overcome through Christ. Our only king is the king of heaven who will be the king of the world. Only our Christ is worthy. You know, I spent uh, a month this summer working with Caleb, do, doing honor club with some of our students and a dozen or more students here every Wednesday and Thursday for the month of July. And I, I, have, to, I have to tell you something about that. I, I have become a little less patient. The thing is, though, it, it's not that I'm less patient with our students. I have talked to you on multiple occasions about the importance of our loving people in this community, how critical it is that we reach out in love to this community. 
I have talked to you about the importance of loving the students that we have here as part of our youth program. But then I spent a month with them. I know them better. And when I say that I love them, I mean that I love them. My love for them has made me a little less patient with the shallowness of our faith. Because we are fighting a war. Christ is fighting a war. The Archangel Michael is fighting a war. And the battleground has grown very dark. And I'm not prepared to lose a single one of them on the basis that the church wasn't up to the task. Whatever it takes, we'll do it. Through Christ, we will be empowered. We will serve. I can't make their decisions for them. I can't make them be followers of Jesus. But I can put every opportunity possible in their pathway. We can do that together. And we can protect them from the slings and arrows of the world. And we have to. This world is not helping us. There was a time when enough of the culture subscribed itself to the truth of Jesus Christ that it felt at least part of the time that the world was helping us accomplish our goal. That is no longer the case. The world is not aiding us. The world is not helping us. It is up to us to reach out into this community and say everything that you're being told, young people, Adults, doesn't matter. Everything that you're being told by this world, by this empire, is a lie. And we will speak the truth through Jesus Christ. We have a desperate choice. And we cannot be of this empire and of the kingdom of God 